Hello, horse fans, and hello, mystery fans. Welcome to Horse Mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. And my name's Lisa Williamson. And this week, we're back with another riveting true crime story about horses involved with crime. This is all about criminal horses, mob horses, gangster horses, murdering horses, the famous horse, Dr. Crippen. We all, all know that horse. Jack. Jack the Ripper, that horse. No. <laughs> Lisa's shaking your head, which is poor podcasting, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. Do we? Yes, we have a new we have a new mystery this week. But of course, as always, before we get to that mystery, which we were promised was an antic mystery, a bit of a caper. Mm-hmm. So I'm expecting something that we can put yakety sex to <laughs> throughout the show. But uh, before we get there, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this is horse bits, as you know, and I like to surprise you with a with a. A bit of a horse anatomy. Okay. And I want you to talk about it a little bit. But you can decide however you, however you want to talk about it. But I thought today we'd talk a little bit about the horse's heart. Oh, the heart. Okay. Uh, I think the average horse's heart is about seven pounds. And it's similar to the human heart and four chambers and all that stuff. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Important part of the cardiovascular system, obviously. Um, and the, the horse's, obviously, cardiovascular system is, like, super strong okay. compared to the humans, comparatively. But um, Why would that be? Because they're, uh, a, they're a flight animal? They need to have, Yeah, like, more... so, I mean, think about, like, the size of their lungs. You know, they, they extend, like, their, their whole You're rib be, cage. You mean even relative to this, the fact that a horse is bigger than us, its lungs are going to be, be mm-hmm, bigger than us. Mm-hmm, yeah. But even relative to the size of a horse to a human, the lungs are bigger? Oh, your lungs are big, but the oxygen, oxygen, is it oxygen carrying capacity, I used to know all these words, these terms, but yeah, I think like 10 times, 100 times more efficient, more volume of air compared to the horse or compared to the human yeah so horses yeah lungs are are super strong but they're also the horse's weak link in that you know like a bone can break and a bone can heal and muscles can tear and they can heal and a tendon can get injured and it can heal to a degree um and ligaments even as well but if the lungs get damaged then that's where you're at. There's no going back, and okay. they can only get worse. So you have to be super careful with the lungs. But yeah, lungs and heart very closely tied in together because yeah, with a flight animal, you want to get that oxygen out to the muscles. But yeah, the heart is, as I said, four chambered. It's usually about seven pounds, but especially with thoroughbreds, and I think we talked about this a little bit in maybe episode one, the Secretariat story. Thoroughbreds tend to have bigger hearts, mm-hmm. and so because they're more noble. Yeah, so, and I mean, that is something, it's a term people use, that horse has a lot of heart. And so mm-hmm. what they mean is, I think noble is the word that you would be looking for. It, it's not just that the horse is athletic and he can run, but he's got this other quality to him. He wants to do those things, mm-hmm. right? He's yeah. got the desire to do those things. And especially with the thoroughbred, it's very much bred into them to be a doer. Um so, yeah, and that, that is obviously a problem with some people if you want your horse to stand perfectly still and not react to things. So, yeah, the thoroughbred's not the horse for every person, but that's what the thoroughbred's been bred to do for 300 years. And so, you know, we've got selective breeding that not only have made this horse very strongly reactive, but they also generally will have a bigger heart. And some of them have that 
what is supposed to be called the X factor where they can have quite an enormous heart. So it's like a turbocharged heart. So again, we talked about Sham, who was the horse that ran against Secretariat, having a heart of about 20 pounds. And, and the the guy who did the autopsy on Sham had also done Secretariat's the year before. And he figured that uh, Secretariat's was actually about a you know, pound heavier, so about 21 pounds. Hmm. So three times as big as the average horse's heart. Wow. And then Farlap, who's a famous Australian horse, his was measured or weighed at about 14 pounds. So, yeah, the thoroughbred typically has a bigger heart. So, yeah, turbocharge. All right, cool. All right, so uh, what's this episode? What are we calling this uh, this episode? Well, I, it turns out I'd forgotten that I came up with this great name for it, which was A Horse of a Different Color, and you'll see why. <laughs> right. Uh, is that a reference to The Wizard of Oz? No. Oh, okay, because there's a horse of a different color in the, oh, is there? the film version. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Okay, so shall we start? You were never allowed to watch The Wizard of Oz, were you? Mm, I know my dad did not like it at all. No. <laughs> scared of it huh okay let's okay. let us begin dear let's okay. you know we should start though at the beginning good idea yeah august 18th 1984 so what were you doing august 18th august 18th 1984 oh boy i guess i was fretting because i just graduated and had no life plans or anywhere i was going <laughs> I hadn't planned ahead. I had no college I could go to at that point. What was I doing? Those are good questions. Mm-hmm. Probably just the usual, my life is the usual slow motion disaster. Mm-hmm. That is, it has been and will always will be. <laughs> no, not, not recently, certainly. <laughs> certainly, hopefully not in the future. <laughs> I, I was thinking I probably either was at the PNE. Okay. That would have been my first year riding Digby there. Okay. Or getting ready to go, yeah. because, yeah, August 18th, that might have been a so, few days yeah, early. That would have been a big deal for you, but mm-hmm. I never went to the Peony in those days, mm. so it wasn't until I met you that I started going there as a, mm. on the reg. Yeah. Impoverished <laughs> childhood. Okay. Yeah, it was yeah, a bit of impoverished was, yeah. in that way. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. No, I probably, I mean, it was summertime, I'm sure I was enjoying the pool, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I was also probably under a lot of pressure to get a job. Yes. And uh, there were no jobs. No. At that time. That is true. It's hard to find a job. Mm-hmm. And I was what uh, could best be described as unemployable. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I think. Uh, well, it was just a tough time. It was a tough time for most people. Okay, so the place that this takes place is in is a place called Eagle Farm Racecourse, which is located in the posh suburb of Ascot just outside of Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. Oh, okay. Yeah. When you said Ascot, I thought it would be in English. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, similar to here, we have a lot of names mm-hmm. that have come from there that sure. we have borrowed, and Australia is no different. But they have some wacky names, which we will see here, too. <laughs> okay, so what happened? So Eagle Farm Racecourse, they mm-hmm. were running a full card, so they had a bunch of races on that day. The fourth race at Eagle Farm was the Commerce Novice or Second Division Handicap, run over 1,500 meters. So, this was a race for upcoming or emerging young horses and or older horses of limited ability. Basically, horses that haven't won very much. Yeah. Um, so, one horse in the field. Or, or are on the downside of the mm-hmm. field. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
on that slippery slope. Uh, so one horse in the field, the eight-year-old bay gelding, fine cotton, uh, was being ridden by apprentice jockey Gus Philpot. Now, do you know what an apprentice is? Well, someone who's learning the craft, mm-hmm. I assume. Yeah, so beginner. And so one thing with apprentice jockeys is they carry less weight because they have less experience for people to hire that person. Like, why would you hire someone that's less experienced yeah just why not just go with an experienced jockey so they've got to encourage people to hire them and so the generally uh an apprentice will carry less weight so they don't weight the saddle you mean like or they themselves oh they themselves um because they're young yeah they they have to stay very skinny they're young and wiry. Yeah, they do a lot of reducing is the term they use. <laughs> yeah. Eating ice. And yeah, so even if even if they're not kind of naturally skinny, they still often have to spend a lot of time in like the sweat box mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that, just making sure they keep their weight down. So, yeah, that's the advantage is if you get an apprentice, then you your, your horse carries less weight. So theoretically has a bit better chance. So this horse, Fine Cotton, he has such poor form that he opened at odds of 33 to 1 (laughs) just a week earlier or so on August 8th. He had finished 10th in a field of 12. Okay. That was a 1,200-meter intermediate handicap at Doomben Racecourse. Okay. Uh, And at that time, he was carrying uh, 53.5 kilograms. And on that day, he had started at odds of 20 to 1. And looking at his race record, he has only had two wins in 70 starts. And most of those were on bush tracks. So not running in good competition, basically. Yeah, yeah. But on this particular day, August 18th, uh, lots of eyebrows were raised because looking at this horse who looked to be a poor risk, all of a sudden there was an avalanche of money being bet on him. Huh. And not just at Eagle Farm, but at other tracks around the country and then at the betting places around the country. Um, Money was even coming in from other countries like Fiji and New Guinea to bet on this horse. (laughs) Uh, So he started at 33 to 1 as a long shot. Um, The odds quickly dropped to 20 to 1. And then 25 minutes before... The race, the odds fell again, and then he was 15 to 1, and then, yeah, he ended up starting the race at this, at 7 to 2 as the favorite. So, but if you got in early, you, you had the, 30, the the 33. I don't know how betting works. I do not understand it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just know that if you... I think I would assume that if you no, if you I, go if you go in when it's one no I don't think that's one. how it works I think it's how the horse starts oh, so okay. if you bet money like two bucks or whatever yeah and he was thirty three to one I think if all these other people bet on him and he ends up seven to two then it's those odds that you're just holding the ticket for that horse at the oh, odds okay. that he starts a race at okay I believe but yeah. I I don't uh, really get betting, so <laughs> anyway, I think I bet on a horse once in my life. Oh, yeah, two dollars. Did you win? I did, but I didn't. I was with someone I used to work with. Yeah, and he uh, he gave me and his two daughters 
$2 each, and he said, bet on this horse. And so we all bet on Then he came to the, and he goes, you want to bet again? I would bet on this horse. And I'm like, no, I'm keeping my money. And then his one daughter just kept betting every time he yeah. said to bet, and yeah. she ended up coming home with a ton of money. But uh, <laughs> I was keeping my $14 or whatever it was that I got, $8, $5, $6. It wasn't very much. Better safe than sorry. I guess. Yeah, it wasn't your money. You could have just really I know. It. I know. Looking back, I'm like, I should have just gone <laughs> gone crazy. But whatever. Okay. Oh, well. So, yeah, it, it basically looked like this horse was being backed to the exclusion of all others. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah later on. Um, Isn't this kind of suspicious, though, that yes. people from Fiji yes. are bidding yeah. on a horse? And, and not just, of... yeah, people from Fiji, but other reports came in about... And it feels a... like it's kind of an obscure track as well. It's not like it's... No, this this track is a well-known track. So okay. uh, probably unusual that a horse like this who's been running on bush tracks would be running here. I see. Um yeah, so, yeah, aside from the, you know, people from Fiji, etc., betting on the horse, they also had reports later on after they investigated about a pregnant woman handing over piles of cash that she showed up carrying in a large plastic <laughs> garbage bag, sure. and that was at the Southport race course. Um, there's another race course called Spin Dogs. Yep outside of Sydney, and there a Catholic priest was seen running between bookies to get everything on fine cotton. Um, it was also noted that large bets were placed on this inauspicious animal by very experienced and usually discerning gambling operators, such as the on-course bookmakers Robbie and Bill Waterhouse, and also a very unlikely punter, a lady called Mona Lisa Lewis, who happened to be the mother of Queensland Police Commissioner Terry Lewis. Huh. So all of these people were betting on this horse. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Fishy? Maybe. <laughs> Just seem curious. Yeah. So these actions resulted in what's called a betting plunge of 1.5 million Australian. So a betting plunge is when a large volume of betting causes a total wind pool to increase above normally expected amounts. I see. So consequently, the bookies then shorten the odds on fine cotton and lengthen the odds on all the other horses in the race in order to protect their investment. So the race starts and quickly turns into a two-horse race with the current favorite, Fine Cotton, running neck and neck with the originally touted favorite, Harvest Gold, who started at five to one. Okay. So as the two horses come down the home stretch, they're neck and neck. So one stride, Fine Cotton's leading, and then the next stride, Harvest Gold is in front, and this continues on at the wire, back and forth, until finally Fine Cotton takes it by a nose. Hmm. Whew. <laughs> so... In the stands, a clamor starts, so people are booing and calling ring in. Uh, Trackside, the bookmaker's clerks start shouting, wrong horse, wrong horse, wake up stewards, official inquiry, official inquiry. So an inquiry, if you go to the the track, um, when the jockeys go across the finish line, as they're coming back, they circle around, they come back, and they usually just do a little action with their hand that's holding the whip and they just kind of pump the hand up and down and that is a signal to the stewards that the race was fair they have no complaints okay uh but if i don't know what the signal is for them to say it wasn't fair but say they felt they got boxed in or bumped by another horse uh or they someone cheated in some way or other um then the stewards would put up 
a thing on the board that says inquiry. And so until the inquiry is over, then they won't pay out the race because it could be that they have to disqualify a horse and then that will change, yeah, the order of, you know, the horse that maybe was second will now be the first place winner or something. Hmm. So, yeah, the clerks are, are shouting for an inquiry. So... The press room empties. The reporters all run down to the rail to see what's going on because the place has just erupted into chaos. Yeah. So the winner is brought up to the scale because that's another thing that happens at a race. The jockey has to jump off and step on the scale and make sure he's actually riding at the weight that he's supposed to be. And he'll be able to carry the saddle as well, which contributes to the weight. But the chief steward then confronts the horse's trainer a man called Hayden Haitano, and asks him, doesn't this horse look a bit lighter in color than the last time you raced it? Um, and then the assistant judge, Lester Grimmett, said, this horse is no fine cotton. Okay. So the horse is, at this point, tracking white paint everywhere he steps. Um <laughs> So it's obvious that his white socks on his hind legs have been painted on. Yeah. um, And the paint is now dripping down off his legs. All right. So the racetrack officials ask trainer Haitana for Fine Cotton's identification papers. So he's escorted to the horse's stall, but he can't produce the paperwork. He swears he brought the papers and that someone has taken them out of his bag. So he goes off in search of them. So after a short time... Chief Steward Andy Tyndall summons Haitana over the track PA, but Haitana does not return and does not respond. So it becomes apparent that he has absconded. He hightailed it. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, the racetrack officials have halted the payout on an unprecedented a- or in an unprecedented action. So the payout signal announcement was delayed pending the steward's investigation of Fine Cotton's papers. It proved to be a long wait. So removal of the bandages on Fine Cotton's hind leg show that it was indeed white paint that had been applied in a clumsy manner in an effort to deceive. (laughs) So that coupled with a huge bedding plunge and Fine Cotton's glaring improvement in form over his last start just a week and a half earlier Mm -hmm. made it clear that this horse was not, in fact, Fine Cotton. So coincidentally, uh, Bill Naum who is the former trainer of a horse called Bold Personality, who had recently sold that horse, happened to be at the track, and he recognized that the horse being raced under the name of Fine Cotton was, in fact, Bold Personality. I see. So this is confirmed by Dr. Robert Mason, the Queensland Turf Club vet, who compared the horse to the identification papers of Bold Personality and declared it was a match. So 15 minutes after the race, Fine Cotton was disqualified, and the race was awarded to Harvest Gold. So ultimately, the races placed first Harvest Gold, second Cabaret Kingdom, and third Grovelly Boy. So what happened immediately? Yeah. So Bold Personality's former trainer, Bill Naum, again recognized his former horse. He had just sold it for $20,000 to a bloodstock agent called John Gillespie. So Bold Personality is a good racehorse who is ineligible to run in a novice race, such as the one that he was just in, because he's a much higher class horse. I see. So closer inspection of the papers of the horse that ran the race, Bold Personality, shows he's a seven-year-old bright bay gelding with no markings. 
the horse fine cotton, who is supposed to have run in the race, is an eight-year-old dark bay or brown gelding with two white socks. So clearly, <laughs> yeah, it was a poor attempt at a substitution scam. It's weird. It almost feels, almost feels like there's another shoe that's going to drop. Yes. Another horseshoe that's going to mm-hmm. drop. I think so. Just the fact that it's so clumsily done doesn't yes. make any sense. Yeah, no, it doesn't And also make that sense. they somehow leaked this information out. Mm-hmm. Like, how did all these people know yeah. that this horror, this, 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 you know, whatever, six-time loser, <laughs> fine cotton affair, was suddenly going to be like... Yeah, 68-time loser. Yeah, how, like, <laughs> how is he going to suddenly, like, how do they know? How does, like, the, ch- the police chief's mother know to go and bet on this horse? Yeah, yeah. This is fishy, it's a, dear. It's a crazy story. My uh, my uh, antenna are wiggling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trainer Hayden Haitana has disappeared. Uh-huh. So further investigation into his background shows that he's a New Zealander who had spent time in jail in the past for stealing a chainsaw. He had come to Australia with high hopes of... It was a ripoff. Yeah, living the high life, but had fallen into horse training as a way to make ends meet. He's a big drinker, and at the time of the incident, he was living with his brother, Pat, who's a jockey. Um, and Pat had recently just got out of a place called Bogo Road Jail for passing bad checks. Okay. <laughs> uh, nice family. So... Yeah. Um, so, so since... Was this, but this, was this hidden... It was a trainer, like actually like a racehorse trainer? Yeah, yeah, he's a racehorse trainer. Okay. Doesn't take a lot to get a license as a racehorse trainer. <laughs> okay. I mean, there are certain things you have to do, Yeah. but like remember when we had episode one and the guy who had kidnapped that secretariat baby yeah. later on, he had got his trainer's license and he was training in Arkansas or whatever. <laughs> after, And he had had lots of other issues with the law. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Maybe it's a recommendation. Yeah. Like, have I know... You had, have you had it, any penalties in the law? You know, add five points to... <laughs> yeah, around here, um, I don't know if it's still the rule, like, you couldn't have outstanding debts with, say, the telephone company to be a trainer. Oh, really? Like, up here, yeah. yeah, yeah. They had very strict rules, but well, the telephone company has really strict rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, obviously. You can't elsewhere. make any phone calls. <laughs> no, elsewhere, they, I think they're obviously... Maybe a little lax, but whatever. (laughs) So he's run off. The trainer's run off. um, And so that meant that the horse, bold personality, was abandoned at the track. So he was then... This um, explains why so many people here objected to the phone monopoly, telephone company monopoly. mm -hmm. It's way too controlling. Yeah. Um, So the... uh, That's why I couldn't get a job after I got out of school. I owed money to the telephone company. (laughs) That's your excuse? (laughs) It's my excuse. (laughs) Stupid phone company. (laughs) Okay. Look at these dumb rules. Yeah. So, yeah, the trainer had run off. He abandoned the horse at the track. So then the police step in to investigate, and they seize the horse as evidence. Uh, and then they take the horse to the mounted police unit in Oxley, near Queensland. Um, and then the horse mysteriously disappeared in the crowd. Yeah. They never, they never saw it yeah. again. No, he didn't actually disappear. He was, yeah, held and housed quite comfortably with the police horses. It was the horse that painted its own socks mm-hmm. on. It's, an ex- it's a master of disguise. Yeah. So there was a guy called John Shrek, who is a Sydney race stewards mm. chairman, was put in charge of the investigation. Okay. Question. Hmm? Was he green? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, the jockey, Gus Philpot, was interviewed immediately. 
He stated that the horse he understood to be fine cotton moved up the rail surprisingly easily, especially considering his past form. <laughs> and this was his first time riding the horse. Okay. Turns out there were some part owners of the horse fine cotton, and they were asked to appear before the stewards. The owners were listed as Miss Pauline Peace and Mr. Malcolm McGregor, age 75. Huh. And he was listed as a prominent businessman who himself had previously been in trouble with the law for having tried to sell yellow-painted sparrows as canaries. <laughs> Maybe he's the one who painted on the Maybe. Um, so Mc- He also owed money to the phone company. Yeah. McGregor appeared uh, before the stewards, but Miss Pease did not appear. But Wait, spell her last name. Uh, it's like P-E-A-S-E. Oh, okay. Yeah. Peace Porch Hot. Yeah. So, not... Oh, it's a nickname in school. Probably. Not much information came from this interview. There was much public outrage, and the incident was front-page news all over Australia. So, because horse racing is huge in Australia. Okay. Very big. I took a clinic with this guy called Andrew McLean, who's, I think he's a PhD... He teaches at, or he has in the past taught at the vet school. He does lots of studies on different things with horses and how they learn, etc. But some of the work that he does is with racehorses and the track. And he was a guy that I think successfully, he and a few others, got it so that you they can't use whips at the racetrack at, in Australia anymore. What? Yeah. How did they make their horses go? Well, they did studies and they found out that it didn't make a difference. Oh, really? So I think their point was, why bother? Um, (laughs) Because he's all about, like, basically, like, being nice, kind to horses. Yeah. Yeah. Ethical behavior towards animals, which is good. But one thing that he said is that, you know, if there's not a race going on, then the people waiting in the booking place will bet on which fly is going to crawl up the wall fastest in the room that they're in. So, yeah, betting is apparently a big way of life over there. More so than here, I would say. Well, it's different probably. Mm -hmm. So those involved in the fine cotton affair went into hiding. So Hayden Haitana, he went on the run, but a few days later appeared on TV 60 Minutes where he was involuntarily interviewed by a lady called Jana Went, and he started to name names, and he also claimed his life was being threatened. Huh. So he said, yes, it was a fix, and it was organized by a syndicate run by a Gold Coast con man called John Gillespie. So that was a guy who was the booking agent that bought the horse for 20000 I see. So Hayden had met Gillespie through his brother Pat when both were doing time together at the Bogo Jail. So Gillespie had engineered a similar race fix two years previous, and the only issue was that the wrong horse ended up winning. Gillespie felt that this time he knew better how to control all the moving parts for a successful outcome, except for the paint. <laughs> yes. So. It's, so, it's so half-assed. It is, yeah. It gets worse. So this is one of the first mentions of John Gillespie in connection to the case, other okay. than as a bloodstock agent, which yeah. we said. But in addition to being a former bloodstock agent, he was a, also a former used car salesman and a police informant. Mm. He had over 350 criminal convictions, mainly for fraud and cons. Yeah, he had almost pulled off a ring in two years previous that we 
heard about he, when he had substituted a horse called Apparent Heir for a horse called Manasong at Doom Ben Racecourse. But yeah, again, the wrong horse won. So in the end, the horse's trainer, Bill Steer, got ruled off the track for life. So, like Haitana, since a race, Gillespie had been on the run. So, ultimately, he was found by the police almost a year later, hiding in his sister's cupboard. <laughs> she didn't know he was living there. No. I thought Harry Potter was there. <laughs> so, another name that Haitana mentioned was socialite businessman Robert North. So, North was arrested while Gillespie was still on the run. Although Haitana did not name the individual, there was an implication of a Mr. Big who was involved as well. So on August 30th, Independent MP Lindsay Hartwig, while sitting in the Queensland Parliament, named bookmaker Robbie Waterhouse as being a person of interest in the case and asked in the House, is he the Mr. Big in the scandal? So Waterhouse immediately denied any connection. So Haitana ended up being arrested in the Truro Motel in southern Australia, northeast of Adelaide, within a month of his TV appearance. He was extradited to Queensland, where he spent the next six months in jail. So, on the surface, it seems as though the fine cotton affair was nothing more than a comedy of errors, an amateurish farce that was played out by a troop of idiots <laughs> who were trying to fleece bookmakers. <laughs> by entering a known slow horse in a race while making sure the odds were high so there was plenty of cash to be won. So at the last minute, swapping the slow horse for a faster one. But the reality, and as more evidence surfaced, the case was one of a more fearful commitment to a plan, no matter how bad the plan was or how much misfortune was encountered on the run to its execution, rather than just a case of bumbling ineptitude. So Haitana, in particular, appeared to have participated as he truly felt threatened, and North was in a similar situation. So ultimately, three people, John Gillespie, Hayden Haitana, and Robert North, served jail time, while the Queensland Turf Club ruled a total of eight people off the track for life. Looking back from now, so as decades have passed, it became clear that there is more to the case than originally presented. So a poorly orchestrated correction, uh, the significant number of people affected through large betting pools, as you pointed out, the large number of participants and the negative fallout in the racing and gambling world pointed to the fine cotton affair being something more than just a criminal enterprise undertaken by a group of bumblers. So that was a quote. (laughs) actually from a study that was done on the effect of things like this in racing. Okay. So in 2010, Gillespie made the bold claim... That was from a professor of the Department of Bumbling. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, in 2010, Gillespie made the bold claim that the fine cotton affair was not, in fact, either an inept or a darkly comic attempt at a substitution scam, but was, instead, an elaborate double sting that ultimately earned him $1.8 million. Hmm. So he stated that the plan was never to have Fine Cotton be the horse who paid out, and rather, Gillespie himself had bet heavily on the runner-up Harvest Gold. So it's important to note that Chief Steward John Shrek, who led the investigation in 1984, denies the veracity of this second version of events. So Hmm. he said there was never any big payout, but whatever. Anyway, according to Gillespie, uh, he purportedly arranged the syndicate on instructions from the underworld gangster... He's got numerous 
pointed this out last time, so I'll say his, he's called Mick, he's called Mickey, and he's called Mike Sayers. So he goes by <laughs> all of them. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, career criminal Birdie Kid was even more recently stated in the July 1st, 2022 edition of the Daily Mail that he was a person who engineered the plot in conjunction with Sayers. Okay. So according to Kid, he was also in Bogo Jail. At that time, he was there for armed robbery. So yeah. at the same time as Gillespie and Pat Hitana. So Gillespie first approached Kid with the idea of the simple substitution scam. But due to Gillespie and Haitana's connections at the track and their life experiences, the idea sounded viable, but Kidd was the individual who took it to the next level, making the introduction between Gillespie and his best mate, McSayers. So McSayers was a known violent gangster, an illegal starting price bookmaker who was also involved in a variety of other criminal pursuits, so everything from armed robbery to drug dealing. Sayers' alleged involvement in this case has never been confirmed and likely never will be. But according to Gillespie, Sayers needed to generate a significant amount of money as he owed a large debt to illegal Sydney gangster and bookmaker George Freeman. Okay. So interestingly, a third version of the story from David Waterhouse, and we've heard them before, they're other bookmakers, and we'll yeah, hear more yeah. about them later, is that the origins of the scam are attributable to Freeman, although there appears to be little evidence to support that. So, according to Gillespie, one night, Sayers invited Gillespie to his Bronte Beach home, and there he dumped on the table what Sayers claimed was a million dollars. Meanwhile, in Kidd's version of the meeting, it took place immediately after Gillespie got out of jail, and Kidd had set the meeting up to happen at a solicitor's office. So regardless of which version is correct, um, Gillespie is told that the million dollars on the table is destined for Freeman, who had fixed a race a month earlier, resulting in a big loss for Sayers. Sayers is determined to get even with Freeman and is prepared to finance the whole venture to the tune of $100,000 in the hopes of getting a million dollar payout. Hmm. So he was prepared for an elaborate, lengthy and costly scam. But fortunately for him, at the end of the day, Gillespie claims that in addition to the $1.8 million that he won personally, Sayers also took home $12 million. Holy cow. Yeah. So, significant digression here. So, four months earlier, that same year in March, a racehorse trainer, George Brown, was allegedly approached to execute a ring-in at Doom Ben Racecourse. But he made the mistake of refusing to carry out the scam. Sadly... Brown's tortured body was found on April 2nd, 1984, at the Bully Tops car park in his burned-out Ford Falcon sedan. His murder is still unsolved today in spite of a $1 million reward being offered by the New South Wales police. Hmm. So Brown was a 38-year-old trainer, described as a likable man, who had initially agreed to be part of a substitution scam... He had been given a down payment to swap a better-performing horse for a poorly-performing filly called Risley at a race in Doomben on March 31, 1984. But he got cold feet and didn't go through with the swap. So the organizers of the scam arrived at his Sweet Mouth Road stables in Rosebury two days later, wanting their money back, but it was gone. He spent the day frantically calling around, trying to pull the money together, and then the next day, his body was found in his burnout car. So the autopsy showed that he was dead before the car was torched. But prior to that, he had had his 
arms, legs, and shoulder broken. He had been force-fed alcohol, and his skull had been crushed. So recent evidence... I guess they're trying to make it look like he broke his own arms, legs, and shoulder. And then got drunk. And, well, he, well, he yeah. was drunk. Yeah. The police came and said, oh, look, this drunk man broke his arms, legs, and shoulder. And skull. And skull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor guy. The dangers of alcohol. Mm-hmm. So recent evidence has come forth to point the finger squarely at legendary bookmaker Bill Waterhouse, so the father of Robbie and David Waterhouse. In Mm. 2019, Bill Waterhouse's younger and now estranged son, David, claimed that in 1989, his father told told him he was involved in the death of Brown, along with the then Tongan king, Tafawahua Tupo IV. Representatives of Bill Waterhouse deny this claim, and the Tongan royal family has also issued an official statement refuting this claim. And clearing the name of, what was, clearing the name of? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I could not, um, don't ask me that again. Okay, so David Waterhouse's story was that, according to his father, when Brown backed out of the deal, Tongan muscle were sent in to collect what was owed. Okay. When Brown couldn't produce the cash, the Tongans, who were high, went too far and killed Brown. According to David Waterhouse, his father stated, I got the king to take them straight back to Tonga, and they've disappeared. They'll never be heard of again. The Tongans cook pigs and humans in the ground. So that was his quote. Sorry, what was the king again? (laughs) I'll give you the piece of paper and you can read it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe I'll give you the name of that um, bug from... Australia last year, thus that we read last time. How about that one? Pistica? I don't know. No, no, you need to have the scientific name. Okay. Anyway, back to uh, back to fine cotton. All right. So over the years, David Waterhouse kept quiet as he claimed he and his family were being menaced by the gangster Birdie Kid. David Waterhouse only recently felt safe enough to talk as Kid is now in his 80s and is no longer deemed a threat. So. Meanwhile, back at the fine cotton scam, Gillespie had become aware of a young female trainer named Wendy Smith. Smith was a longtime horse lover and had been one of Australia's first female jockeys. She had moved on to training and ran a small part-time training operation. She was known to be an exceptional hand with a difficult horse and was not overly social with humans. Uh, Smith recalls that one day in 1984, she was approached by a man who introduced himself as John Chandler. He said all the right things, and eventually their talk progressed to an invitation to dinner. While she said that Chandler, who she described as pudgy, did not really appeal to her, the idea of a meal out did sound good, so she accepted. (laughs) Over dinner, the two reached an agreement that Smith would train for Chandler. Chandler then brought a dark bay gelding to Smith's barn. The horse was called Captain Cadet and had recently been purchased for $20,000, according to Chandler. So in a short time, however, Chandler stopped paying board. Smith reached an agreement with Chandler that she would continue to house, train, and race the horse if she could lease it from him. As soon as that agreement was made, Smith received a phone call from an anonymous caller telling her where and when she could run the horse. (laughs) Since she did not run that kind of operation, she ignored the caller's instructions. So fast forward a couple months, and Chandler has been AWOL the whole time. But then one day, as Smith is attempting to load Captain Cadet onto a horse trailer to go to a race meet, a man shows up to tell her that he's the new owner of the horse, and he had just bought the horse from John Gillespie. 
Smith tells him that she doesn't know any John Gillespie. The horse isn't owned by John Gillespie. And then an argument ensues. Eventually, the man unsuccessfully tries to restrain Smith from loading and transporting the horse. Wow. Yeah. Then, uh, a little while later, John Chandler shows up and informs Wendy his name is really John Gillespie. He tells her he has been absent because he's working undercover. Um, <laughs> and in actual fact, he has been locked up in the Bogo Road prison. Oh. Yeah. By this time, Captain Cadet has come up unsound and cannot be raced. So Gillespie then asked Smith to train another horse for him called Dashing Solitaire, who was a Group 2 winner, so that's like a stakes race, um, that they had bought from actor James Mason. Smith had the horse in her care and training for a while. The horse was difficult, but Smith prepped him well, and he was in good shape and ready to go. So shortly after buying Dashing Solitaire, Gillespie goes out to pick up a ringer and finds it in the eight-year-old bush track no-hoper called Fine Cotton who he pays $1,000 for, on the understanding that the horse is going to be retired from the track and used as a lady's hack. He places fine cotton on a diff- with a different trainer. I'm going to say uses the lady's hat. For the- no, hack. Yeah, so makes Riding horse, yeah. Makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So he, traces, he places the horse fine cotton with the trainer, Hayden Haitano. Okay. So back at Smith's barn, one day Gillespie shows up without warning and says he's taking Dashing Solitaire off to run at a track in southern Australia. Hmm. So a couple of days later, on August 7th, Smith gets a call from a barn a few kilometers away telling her to come pick up a horse. When she gets there, she finds that the horse she's picking up is Dashing Solitaire, so he was not in southern Australia at all. And unfortunately, he had had an altercation with a kangaroo, which ultimately resulted in him getting in a tangle with a barbed wire fence. <laughs> so he's seriously injured, and his wounds had not been cared for. The person who is running the barn is a trainer, Hayden Haitano. Wow. Yeah. So going back to the scam planning, Gillespie had first recruited Haitana after Gillespie learned of him from his brother Pat, which we established earlier. Yeah. And the two had been in prison together. But the more important thing that Pat had told him was that Hayden Haitano was a big drinker, and when he drank, he talked. Ah. So Gillespie filled Haitana in on the scam, but told him there was nothing to worry about, stating, I've got some stewards on my side. They're all going to be betting on fine cotton. The same goes for the cops. They'll be backing the horse, too. (laughs) So Gillespie had convinced Haitana to cooperate in the ring-in scam. As the time neared, Haitana did not want to execute the fix, but ultimately he was threatened with a similar fate to that of George Brown. Gillespie did a good job filling Haitana's head with stories of what had happened to Brown and with other stories of a hitman called Rentacle, who was out there somewhere. (laughs) Haitana had also reported that the only reason he went through with the scam was that a man with a gun showed up at his house and threatened him and his family. What Gillespie had not done was told Haitana about the double sting. The entire time, Haitana thought everyone was backing fine cotton, not harvest gold. Yeah. So Haitana's first job was to train and condition fine cotton so that he wouldn't win. (laughs) So the success of this task was evidenced in fine cotton's race record. On August 1st, fine cotton runs and loses. On August 6th, Haitana runs a horse hard in a training session, almost to the point of exhaustion. And then on August 8th, Fine Cotton runs again in his penultimate race, finishing 10th of 12th. But 
With the August 8th injury to Dashing Solitaire, the syndicate is at a crossroads. So Gillespie called Sayers, who apparently told him to make it work. So according to Gillespie, Sayers told him the wheels were already in motion and there was no turning back. If the fix did not go ahead, heads were going to roll and someone was going to get knocked. So Gillespie, who owed Sayers $8,000, is now in serious trouble. <laughs> Sayers references a fate that befell Brown. North, who's listening in on the call, faints. With time running short, Gillespie quickly casts around for another big gelding and comes up with the Bay seven-year-old bold personality. While bold personality is Bay, for those people who don't know what Bay is, Bay is a brown color with a black legs, mane, and tail, but there's a lot of different versions of brown. The same way someone can have hazel eyes that are very, very green with a little bit of brown or very, very brown with a little bit of green, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, Bay Horse has, it can be a very dark, dark, almost black yeah. body color, or they can be a very bright mahogany color. So yeah, there's lots of different varieties. So bold personality is Bay, but he's a different color of Bay than fine cotton. He has different markings and he's not the same age and as we've talked about before you can age a horse by its teeth too yes so it's believed that gillespie was relying heavily on the laxity of the brisbane stewards <laughs> so he panic buys the horse for twenty thousand dollars in the process passes a bum check so actually the owner never got any money for this horse what <laughs> so bold personality was stabled at a place called Bellina. Dixon transported Bold Personality to stables outside of town, but the horse had a long winter coat. They put a New Zealand blanket on him. So a New Zealand blanket is a winter blanket that the horse would wear. It's also waterproof. It's basically made of canvas on the outside and has about a, I would say, almost one inch thick wool undercoat. It's very, very thick. Hmm. Depends. Some of them are one inch thick, half an inch thick, whatever. But um, yeah, it's a very heavy waterproof coat. Um, and then he ships him for four to five hours. So when the horse arrived, he was sweating profusely and was suffering from dehydration. Hayden then offered to rehydrate the horse with a saline drip, which is a procedure usually performed by a veterinarian. In the process of removing the tube, he ruptures a blood vessel. Oh. The group then decides to strap the horse's head to the rafters in an attempt to tilt the head back and stop the bleeding. So along the way, Gillespie also forged new papers for Bold Personality. Unfortunately, Bold Personality was nowhere near as good a match to find cotton in appearance as either Captain Cadet or Dashing Solitaire would have been. Bold Personality was a bright bay rather than a dark bay like fine cotton. Bold Personality was seven, not eight, like Fine Cotton. And Bold Personality had dark legs, unlike the two white hind socks that Fine Cotton had. <laughs> the group then had to attempt to make Bold Personality look more like Fine Cotton. Gillespie ran around to multiple chemists and bought boxes of Clairol hair color. <laughs> Together, John Gillespie, socialite businessman Robert North, and Hayden Haitano tried to dye Bold Personality's body to match that of Fine Cotton. It was stated that, and this is a quote, if anyone had walked past, they would have seen three blokes in gloves massaging hair dye into the body of a full-grown horse. The ground was littered with the empty tubes of Clairol the men had poured out and mixed in the buckets, end quote. Wow. So apparently the men left the dye on overnight without rinsing, and by the morning the horse, rather than getting darker, had turned a bright orangey red. <laughs> 
Then they spent valuable time attempting to scrub off the dye. Oh, man. Yeah. Unfortunately, the process took so long that by the time they finished, they realized they had forgotten to use peroxide on Bold Personality's legs. So the group resorted to spray painting the gelding's hind legs white. (laughs) So Norris reported that Gillespie was running around the backyard like a blue-assed fly, trying to spray the horse's hooves. It was unbelievable. Haitana then bandaged the horse's legs. Haitana then drugged the real fine cotton with what he termed a Haitano bomb, a chemical concoction that he had once used with success on a racehorse a couple of years previously. So this step was undertaken on the off chance that the real fine cotton ended up in the race instead of bold personality for some reason. So they do do drug testing here, so I'm assuming they would do drug testing there. The winner here, the winner is always drug tested and then yeah. a random horse from the race is also always drug tested. I assume they drug test after the race though? Yeah. yeah. So it still would have had the same result of the horse being eliminated. I guess. Yeah, you're right. Okay. So both horses were transported to the race course and Fine Cotton was left in the trainer trailer screaming his head off and thrashing around unable to restrain himself while under the effects of the amphetamine cocktail he had been administered. <laughs> oh so Bold Personality visited the farrier oh, and in horses. the... Yeah, I know. In the process, the wrong type of shoes were put on him, and then it was off to the races. So the news of the fix was filtering through the track in various nooks and crannies, purportedly via both Gillespie and Haitana, but apprentice jockey Gus Philpott was blissfully unaware, in spite of a few knowing nods and glances that were exchanged in the jocks' room before the race, uh, the significance of which went right over his head. (laughs) So, after a bit of a slow start, once the race was well underway, it became apparent that the plotter, Fine Cotton, had had a tremendous improvement in form almost overnight. (laughs) And Harvest Gold and Fine Cotton raced neck and neck to the wire, leaving the rest of the field well behind. And Fine Cotton, as we know, won by a nose. (laughs) So, that's when the cries of foul went up. But according to Gillespie, it was on his signal that men he had planted in the grandstand at the track called Ring In. (laughs) (laughs) This was done as the syndicate members had to make sure Fine Cotton was disqualified in order to make money on Harvest Gold. So Gillespie himself had an airtight alibi as he was watching the race with a senior Queensland police officer and another officer up in the stand. So at trial, syndicate member Robert Norris stated that he thought the whole situation would blow over and people would forget about it. He felt that he wouldn't be arrested because he hadn't backed the horse. North was convicted to one year in prison for fraud and served six months. Trainer Hayden Haitana was convicted to one year in prison and served six months. Gillespie was convicted to four years in prison. He served five months in custody with two years of home detention. So Dixon and Deluzio, who were people that helped with uh, the dying and whatnot, they they were acquitted. So ultimately, the Queensland Turf Club warned off or banned eight people for life. They included the organizer, John Gillespie, horse trainer Hayden Haitana, businessman Robert North, electrician, electrical technician Tommaso Deluzio, salesman John Dixon, and bookmakers Bill and Robbie Waterhouse. It was determined that Bill and Robbie Waterhouse knew of the substitution and connived at the betting. 
The committee issued this statement. So, quote, the committee is left with the overwhelming inference that such central organization and direction either came from or involved R.W. Waterhouse, end quote. <laughs> the Australian Jockey Club took an unprecedented step, serving seven men with notices, including bookmakers Robbie Waterhouse and Bill Waterhouse, as well as some punters. These men were called on to show why they should not be warned off for prior knowledge. On October 30th, 1984, Robbie Waterhouse and Bill Water... Or White... Waterhouse? Yep, Waterhouse. Waterhouse. I wrote White House here. <laughs> uh, Waterhouse were warned off indefinitely. In 1986, Robbie Waterhouse went to trial, facing 97 additional charges. And in 1988, all charges were dismissed. However, in 1992, Robbie Waterhouse admitted to false swearing and was ultimately sentenced to eight months in a periodic detention at Long Bay Jail for making a false statement about bets placed for Gary Clark in the fine cotton affair. So another person who had to appear in court was trainer Wendy Smith. Although she claimed her innocence at the time and continues to claim her innocence of the scam to this day, she did ultimately admit in court that she lied three times. In each case, about recognizing Gillespie's son, Michael, who had helped to transport Dashing Solitaire when he left her stable. She claimed that she lied because she felt sorry for Michael, who was only about 20 at the time. She did not want his life ruined by his minor involvement in the scandal. As she had admitted to previous lying while on the stand, the Supreme Court of Queensland laid down a judgment on October 30, 1986, declaring that Wendy Smith who was by that time Mrs. Wendy Gay Fahey, would lose her training license and be warned off indefinitely. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Harsh. Yeah, a lot of fallout from this. Mm -hmm. Speak well, you can see why it's harsh, though. I mean, think of the treatment of the horses. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot. Yeah. yeah. So the Fine Cotton Affair demonstrated that the entire legal order was tainted and exposed a deeper institutional corruption on many levels, as well as exposing racing's link to organized crime. <laughs> so while horse racing has always been subject to significant government regulations, in the case of Fine Cotton, the conman had discovered and taken advantage of both loopholes and corruption in the system, both at the racetrack as well as in civil government and the police. So today in Australia, as a result of the fine cotton affair, there are new operational processes for the identification of horses. Horses intended for racing are either branded or microchipped on registration to allow for easy identification prior to a race. This step has resulted in the virtual extinction of ring-ins. At tracks around Australia, there was significant public outrage coupled with a huge loss of public confidence and trust in the integrity of the sport of horse racing and gambling as a result of the fine cotton affair. Shocking. Yeah. The dubious I can't believe there's corruption involved with gambling. <laughs> yeah, What's the world coming to if yeah. you can't trust a gambler? <laughs> so the dubious values and corrupt conduct of select members of the racing and gambling com communities and its links to organized crimes were exposed to the public eye. And a paper by Brooks et al. written 2013, it was pointed out that Quote, horse racing suffers more damage from race fixing than other sports due to its reliance on gambling for survival, end quote. Hmm. And to cast the blanket wider, horse sports in general suffer when racing suffers, as many horse sports operate through the infusion of 
off-track thoroughbreds as a steady and affordable source of athletic horses from which to choose from, while in some areas historically part of the money that comes from gambling at the tracks is in turn used to promote and foster horse sports in the area. And we actually saw that with the um, story in Los Angeles. Yes. Yeah, because I think there was money that came maybe from Del Mar or whatever the track was, but a lot of the money that came from Santa Anita, I think there was money from Santa Anita that actually was used to run horse shows and stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah, anyway, so yeah, there's, we don't have that up here as far as I know. Anyway. <laughs> that would involve the racetrack making money. Mm -hmm. So Billie Jean King famously pointed out that, quote, sports is a microcosm of society, end quote. So in the Fine Cotton Affair, society at large invaded the sporting competition space, bringing influence and conduct beyond reasonable control of sporting regulators, end quote. Hmm. So additionally, the Fine Cotton scandal exposed entrenched corruption both... Uh, with those employed by the racing authorities at government levels and in the Queensland law enforcement agencies. Considering the individuals who are involved in betting, the volume of gambling, and the value of the bets, it is quite certain that some Queensland stewards had strong indications of insider knowledge of the scam and did nothing to stop it. Hmm. There was ample evidence that extensive betting on the race took place by members of the Gambling Commission, members of the government, and members of the police force, all indicating collusion. Therefore, racing was compromised by these individuals, and the criminal and corrupt members of the police force who spread the illegal information and did nothing to stop the race. It was shown in court that the chief commissioner of the police himself placed a $5,000 bet on the race through his mother. Uh, numerous members of the Queensland Police Fraud Squad placed bets and a large contingent of Brisbane detectives were all on site that day as well. Hmm. So as a result, there was damage to civic trust, both towards the Queensland government and the police. This eventually led to a royal commission of inquiry into possible illegal activities and associated policeman misconduct, also known as the Fitzgerald Inquiry of 1987. So this inquiry resulted in the resignation of Queensland Premier John Peterson, jail terms for three ministers, but not the racing minister, and for the police commissioner, Terry Lewis. So he went to jail. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's a kind of follow-up. It is huge. One little race. <laughs> a little bit of dripping paint. Yeah. <laughs> so consequently, the intense public scrutiny placed increased pressure on the racing stewards. TAB, or TAB Corp Holding Limited, the leading gambling operative in Australia, now publicly broadcasts large bets that are placed in races. <laughs> there are new rules at the track to help prevent criminal collusion, and those restricting or limiting phone and electronics use at the track. Additionally, those in authority have been grant granted enhanced search and seizure powers in cases of suspected wrongdoings at the track. Now, I remember when I grew up, Obviously, there was no cell phones, but there were no phones in the backstretch at all. Oh, really? Yeah, behind, well, not anywhere where people would be betting. Yeah. But also, there was, I think, one phone in one office in case you had to phone the vet. And other than that, there was no phones allowed. So nowadays, with cell phones, I don't know how they would police that. How yeah. They would control that, but anyway... I think these rules were made before. Short um, answer, they don't. Yeah. 
But yeah, these rules were obviously brought into place before people use cell phones a lot, I think. Yeah. In 1996, the Thoroughbred Racing Board Act was created as a body to control racing in New South Wales. This was done in part to prevent another fine cotton affair from happening again, partly to ensure corruption was taken care of, and partly to prevent overly punitive stands from being taken against people as, by this time, it was felt had been done to the waterhouses. So this is a twist. <laughs> so the new Fair Racing for All initiative was formed and seeks to promote a responsible culture of fair play, ethical behavior, and respect. So after the race, bold personality was abandoned at the track. Again, as we talked about before, Hatana had run away. Um, he was seized and held by the police as evidence, and he stayed for about a year. Um, no, so after about a year, yeah, they had him. And then he was returned to his original owner because Gillespie's check had bounced. He never raced again, and he lived the rest of his life under the care of trainer Bill Naum under his new name, Percy. So fine cotton was found a few days after the race, a few kilometers away from the race course, grazing in a field with a group of police horses. <laughs> so a year after the race, he was bought by movie producer John Stainton, who planned to make a film about the story. Yeah. Stainton bought the rights to the story in 1985 with the idea that fine cotton would play himself in the film. Ultimately, it was decided that the film would be a, leg a legal minefield, so the movie was shelved. Hmm. Fine Cotton spent the rest of his life as a ladies hack, was retired to a small property outside of Sydney, and ultimately died of old age at 33 while still being owned by Stainton. Hmm. Now, so bookmaker Robbie Waterhouse testified that he had not used any of his money to bet on the Fine Cotton race, and rather had placed a $50,000 bet for a client who he first tried to protect and later was revealed to be Gary Clark. The bet was placed using an intermediary, Ian Murray. It was ultimately shown that $10,000 of that money had come from gangster Mickey Sayers. Waterhouse lied on the stand about the particulars of this bet. Robbie faced a protracted legal battle and ultimately served eight months for making a false statement. Both Robbie and Bill Waterhouse lost their licenses for 17 years, but eventually had their bans overturned in 1998. Both regained their licenses a few years after that. Robbie has had numerous run-ins with racing stewards since getting his license back. Coincidentally, Robbie is married to trainer Gay Waterhouse, a former model, actress, and second-generation racetracker who is known as the Queen of Australian Racing. But as the spouse of a disqualified person, Gay Waterhouse also was banned and had to sell her 13 horses. Oh. In 1990, she appeared before the Equal Opportunities Tribunal claiming discrimination, but lost that case. In 1991, she won her appeal, and in 1992 was granted her training license again. Gay Waterhouse is one of Australia's top thoroughbred racehorse trainers with multiple graded winners. And, like, the list is so long of all the horses that she has won that have or, oh, trained that yeah. um, have won top races. Wow. It's very impressive. The couple's son Tom. Or suspicious. Yeah, the couple's son Tom has recently taken over the Waterhouse bookmaking operations, making him the fourth generation Waterhouse to do so. 
So in addition to being a barrister, businessman, and king of the bookmakers, Patriarch Bill Waterhouse had close ties with the then king of Tonga. And was what was Ta- his name again? Oh, I can't remember. And was Tonga's honorary consul general in Australia, huh. a position he had or held until the year 2000. Hmm. Waterhouse was reinstated to the track in 2002, which allowed him to return to train his grandson, Tom. In 2007 and 2008, Waterhouse Bookmakers was Australia's largest on-course bookmakers. So many felt that the Waterhouses were used as an example and that their punishment was little more than a high-profile reprimand designed to appear as an uncompromising response from the racing industry. And many believed that the measures taken against them were overly punitive. However, their reinstatement to the track was met with mixed feelings. One bookmaker stated, quote, Even though it was 17 years ago, there is still a lot of animosity towards him. Remember, he was one of us, yet he was prepared to fleece us. Hmm. It's a bit like Ronnie Biggs going to British Rail and asking if he could get a job as a train guard. End quote. <laughs> it is now believed that Robbie Waterhouse... Know, uh, Ronnie Biggs was, uh, took part in the Great, train, great British Train Robbery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is now believed that Robbie Waterhouse did not have any deeper role in the fine cotton affair other than aiding in placing bets for known individuals such as Mick Sayers and lying on the stand about who was betting. In his 2009 autobiography, Bill Waterhouse claimed that he and his son Robbie were scapegoated by the Australian Jockey Club. Bill Waterhouse has always maintained his innocence in the fine cotton affair. Following the death of Bill Waterhouse in 2019, there was a fallout within the Waterhouse family over the family trust. Bill's younger son David testified to the New South Wales Racing Authority that Robbie and Bill actually bet in the neighborhood of $800,000 on fine cotton as opposed to the $60,000 they claimed. Robert North stayed silent for 33 years before telling his side of the story. He has since married and been in a stable relationship for 27 years. He has had no further issues with the law. In 2010, Hayden Haitana stated, People have always asked why I didn't go to the cops. I say, are you kidding? They were crooks. (laughs) He had his lifetime ban lifted in November 2013 by the Queensland All Codes Racing Industry Board and returned to the track for recreation rather than as a profession. Until that time, he had lived a mostly reclusive life, working as an odd jobsman following the fine cotton affair. Although he would not elaborate for fear of retribution, he claimed that there was much more to the fine cotton story, including the role of corrupt authorities. He died of natural causes in 2017 at the age of 72, leaving behind an adult daughter. Jockey Gus Philpott, who was exonerated following the initial investigation, went on to have a career first as a jockey and then as a trainer. He now works as a racehorse trainer in Victoria. Wendy Smith lost her right to enter horses in racing, thereby ending her career as a trainer. After an unsuccessful appeal, she pivoted, married, moved to Northern Australia, and got into musical theater. <laughs> that was pretty similar. Yeah. Racing, horse racing, horse training, and musical theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Chief steward and investigator John Shrek moved on to a similar role with the Hong Kong Jockey Club. We've heard of them before. Yes. Once the dust had settled, it became apparent how big a role Sayers had played. So overall, he had set in 
play two courses of action. Number one, the purchasing of the horses needed for the scam and the orchestrating of the substitution, which was largely undertaken by Gillespie, Haytana, and North. And number two, the placing of large bets on the relevant race, which was undertaken by Clark, Waterhouse, and Murray. It was later learned that Sayers had actually backed the number two horse on whom he made a bundle. In February 1985, Sayers was shot dead by three masked gunmen. Hitman Roy Thurger was suspected, and it was believed that the hit was pulled off due to Sayers stealing heroin from local gangster Barry McCann. Sayers' murder was never closed. McCann was murdered in 1989, and Thurger died in 1991. In 2019, a book was published called The Fine Cotton Fiasco by Peter Hoisted and Paul Scheel. The Fine Cotton Affair was also the subject of many papers that were published, including the 10 most cringeworthy moments in Australian sports, Holden 2020, where the Fine Cotton Affair was ranked number five, and Restoring Trust in the Horse Racing Industry, Fine Cotton and the Complexities of Gambling, Organized Crime and Entrenched Corruption. John Gillespie jumped bail and fled Australia for the USA on the eve of his fraud trial. <laughs> he had received a warning from Russ Hins, the Queensland Racing Minister, telling him that the police had received information that Gillespie was to be killed. The hitman was purported to be Christopher Dale Rentakill Flannery. Hmm. Gillespie eventually wound up in Asia, where he bought so nightclubs. Wait, say, say that guy's name again. Christopher, first yeah. name, Dale, middle yeah. name, nickname, Rentakill. Oh, okay. I thought that was his actual... No, like, no, it was nickname, Rentakill you know, Flannery. You're, just, you're, yeah. des- you're destined with a name like that, but I see it was his nickname. Okay, it's, What were his parents thinking? Yeah. Okay, so Gillespie eventually wound up in Asia, where he bought nightclubs and bars in Thailand and Malaysia. While in Asia, he was involved in racing, and in 1998, he was up on charges in the Philippines as part of a group of fraudsters who were selling fake passports for the fictitious South Pacific micronation of Mix Milchisectic, or something like that. Okay. So this scam netted him $1 million U.S., In the 2000s, he was investigated for his role in various scams involving racehorses, a $44 million horse race, anti-wrinkle creams, a Gold (laughs) Coast nightclub singer, a multi-million dollar artwork collection, Mm -hmm. and a Muslim terrorist death threat. In 2016, he was... What do these all have in common? Yeah, well, he was named in the Panama Papers as a client of the... Panamanian law firm Mossack Fonseca, which handled gray areas of offshore financing. Hmm. Gillespie had two companies that were incorporated in the Bahamas called the International Millionaires Club and the International Horse Owners Club. Both of these companies ultimately were struck off the registry. He now lives in New South Wales. As mentioned before, he purportedly banked $1.8 million in an offshore account for the fine cotton affair. But Overall, he was a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I mean, it's a. Uh, I kind of called it there when I I supposed that there was more to this story than what met the eye because mm-hmm. it was such a ridiculously bad, bad in every way. Yeah. But kind of, it's uh, it's unfortunate that there's a reality behind the bumbling in a way. Like, if it was just a bunch of bumblers, it'd be kind of amusing. But mm-hmm. because it's some bumblers who then were like, 
were just the front for like a much more nefarious scheme mm-hmm. involving a lot of murderers and yeah. me- you know and and uh, meanies, hitmen and hitmen yeah. and <laughs> all kinds of heroin dealers and whatnot. You're just kind of like, oh, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. That's too bad. It's a bit of bumbling, but yeah. I think if you're going to do a film about it, you just cut out all of the bad guys well they're really like bad stuff yeah I mean, they're all but they're they're bad but they're just like more like kind of you know incompetent mm-hmm. n- you know no non-starters but yeah you don't want to get you want to get rid of like the really you know that would be my recommendation anyway mm-hmm. you don't want reality impinging on this story oh, no <laughs> let's just keep it keep it late yeah no it's uh that was interesting mm-hmm. i didn't uh i don't know very much about racing in australia besides the name farlap and the champion guy oh bob champion was he australian i thought he was maybe i'm wrong i think i thought he was british he could be he was played by john hurd in the, in the movies but for some reason i thought he was australian mm. i don't know why i had that impression maybe i was wrong maybe when i saw the video box it was upside down <laughs> i might be wrong i don't know me neither me neither it, it was a classic gag though when i had uh, cancer one time i said i was going to uh <laughs> go to my friends my mom asked me where i was going i said i'm going to my friends i'm going to watch um Brian's song, Terms of Endearment and Champion, <laughs> three movies of people dying of cancer. She said, that's not funny. I thought it was funny. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, well, that was uh, that was exciting, though, dear. That was mm-hmm. a good story. That was better than my interminable reading of, uh, of Caterpillars <laughs> last time. I'll say that. Well, you got all the scientific words last time. Oh, scientific. <laughs> None of my mouth. <laughs> I took this. I took the science right out of that story. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Do we have a Do we have a story next time? Mm-hmm, we what, do. What is it called? Love hurts. Oh, it's about Nazareth. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Great. My favorite band. <laughs> Your favorite band from the seventies. Okay. Besides, two, okay, you can't name Love Hurts or This Flight Tonight. You have to name one other song by Nazareth by your favorite band. Oh, uh, I they're just my favorite. Songs by my favorite bands. <laughs> I only have two. What a, you must have loved them so much. Two songs. I, I just deep. listen to those songs over yeah, and yeah, over. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Can you name an album by them? No. I saw an album by them. What's, I just. What's I, it I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's called. I <laughs> okay. saw it in the seventies. That was a long time ago. <laughs> my friend's sister had it. Oh, okay. Okay, but was the one with the peacock on the front? I can't. Because that's Rasmataz. Yeah, razzmatazz. Yeah, we're going to razzmatazz all night. <laughs> there you go. You named another song. Yeah, okay. Okay, now I believe you. You are a super fan of, yeah. Ra- of Nazareth. But do you know what is one of those like full circle things? Okay. Do you know that person who was a big fan of Nazareth and she was the older sister of a friend of mine? Okay. Guess whose house I was at today? The younger brother of the older sister of the friend of yours? No, the was... older sister. Oh, okay. I was teaching her granddaughter riding lessons. <laughs> no, her daughter riding lessons. Her daughter. Her daughter is a doctor. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Well, there you go. So I teach her and yeah. her daughter and her granddaughter, but the granddaughter is from her son. Her daughter doesn't have kids. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Well, there you go. Yeah. After losing track of that family for 40 years, yeah. and they're back in my life. I hope you asked for your record back. Well, it wasn't my record, it was hers. But, uh, Just pretend it was yours, they'll yeah, never know. Okay. How will they know? Don't I don't know. remember that far back there. You can't even remember the name of the album. Okay, um, hey, guess what? Linda Ronstadt? What's that? It's just guess what? I don't know. <laughs> Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> no, it was just that when uh, 
thinking back to when I was young and my friend and her older sister. Because, yeah. you know, older siblings, right? They know everything, right? I never, and so uh, yeah. You didn't I was have the, I was the friends si- like that? I was the oldest I was the oldest sibling. Yeah, well, so was I, but I'm saying my friend had older sisters. I did not have... I was the oldest. All my friends were the oldest kids. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think... No, most of mine were younger, the younger kids. But in this Mm. case, this friend of mine had this older sister, and she had very specific taste in music. And so it was like Nazareth... Yeah. Susie Quattro and Linda Ronstadt, those were his three favorites. But also Waylon Jennings, four. That's a very weird... It is. Very weird it mix. is, now that I think about it. But, you know, you just take it at face value and you're yeah, like yeah. 15 years old. Oh, yeah, they must be good. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Huh. That's a weird mix. I didn't, you know, I've known the name Susie Quattro my whole life, but I never really listened to her music. Because hmm. it, it was never played here. Like, she wasn't, like, very big in North America. She had, had a big career in England hmm. but I don't think people here really knew about her very much I mean you knew of her but I don't like I Dorothy I, knew about her at no point like in my like whole growing up was she ever played like on like a classic rock station or anything like that that you huh. would hear a song by her but I finally listened to her just a little while ago and uh, it's not that great no that's my that's my review sad <laughs> it wasn't uh, didn't really live up to I mean she looks great she had, like, her haircut was great. Yeah, yeah, I remember was, the haircut. And her, like, her kind of leather suit yeah, that she wore so was great. I don't, it was it great might have just been an image thing. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you, know, and, you know, maybe if you grew up, like, with the other kind of glam rock of that time period, of that sort, then you would have liked it. Mm-hmm. But to be honest with you, I've discovered that glam rock from that time period is less than you'd think. Like, there's some good, obviously mm-hmm, good bands, mm-hmm. you know, like... Uh, I don't like Wizard. Wizard? I don't mind Wizard, but uh, it's bands like Mud and Slade. Like the kind of more harder rocking ones, I don't find very interesting. Uh, but like I like um, the, the Sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. The other good, like, you know, Blockbuster or Fox in the Run, those mm-hmm. are good songs. But yeah, I just find the other ones just kind of like, it's just sort of noisy and sort of tuneless, and a lot of yelling. And also the, some of them couldn't spell very well. <laughs> so it, just, it makes you concerned for them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they did all right, though. But uh, anyway, this is this is not glam mysteries. This is no. horse mysteries. Yeah. So next time we're going to do a story called Love Hurts. Love Hurts by Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And uh, hey, everybody, you know you can write to us. This isn't illegal. Unlike many of the things that people do in our horse mysteries, <laughs> writing to us is not illegal. We have a website called SneakyDragon.com. You can go there. You will find this show there, and you are you can write a comment underneath it. And we will read that comment on the show. Or, if you want, you can send us an email. Emails can go to our email address, which is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. And we also are, uh, we appear, we appear in various ways on, um, how do we appear in various ways? We appear in various ways on uh, podcast collectors. The mo- kind of the, everyone's favorite one, it seems, is Apple Podcasts. And uh, so everyone says that you should go there and rate and or review us, and that will get attention to us. So please do that. Please feel free to give us 10 stars out of 5. That would be great. And we did have a comment this week uh, from our musical director, Chris Roberts. Chris wrote in to say, on our last episode, he wrote in to say, this was the one I, the one I called Interminable Mystery, when, well, Medical Mystery. Anyway, I made it interminable. I didn't <laughs> But it's uh, 
Chris wrote in to say, Caterpillars, cherry trees, cyanide, get real, people. This is clearly the work of wicked old Uncle Silas. <laughs> Up to his dastardly tricks again. <laughs> so, yes, thank you for that, Chris. Uh, I think you're right. It does seem kind of preposterous that caterpillar frass could cause that kind of uh, mayhem. Mm -hmm. Clearly, old Uncle Silas, that dastard, dastardly fellow, up to his old tricks again. Yep. I think we've come to the... I think we've solved that mystery. So there we go. So, yeah, feel free to write to us, everybody. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to read your comments. So uh, the more the merrier. You know, what I'm trying to say is inundate us. And so with that... I think we'll say goodnight, and, or goodnight. And with that, I think we'll say goodbye. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. This one time, it's called Nazareth. Right, dear? Mm, yeah, right. <laughs> so I hope everyone looks forward to that. We'll see you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.